Would you open your Bibles to the book of Esther, chapter 2. Esther is a book that was written at the time when the Persian Empire was at its apex. In fact, chapter 1 of Esther, I think it's on page 740 if you're still looking. At the time of Esther... This, it says in chapter 1, verse 1, that the empire ruled from Ethiopia to India, 127 provinces. It was an unimaginable expanse of land and property that they had conquered, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. And I say that because this is a guy, King Ahasuerus, is not a nice guy. Like, you don't get to be that guy without having done some things that were unfair, unkind, unpredictable. And it was in this time that to help consolidate power, to remind these people of the power that he had, that he is throwing this great, humongous party. And it's not the party like, you know, like a party party. This is a, everybody come here and see how powerful I am. It actually says that in chapter one. He wanted to celebrate how powerful and glorious he was. And so if you can imagine in your mind, for our modern minds, imagine Kim Jong-un parading down in North Korea, all the weapons, the, the nuclear missiles, and the power, basically reminding the people who was in charge. And that's when he talks about in chapter one, he had the armies of the Persians and the Medes. They were all there parading him down to show them how powerful he was, not how benevolent he was. But they did go in and they had a festival and there was like a seven-day bender. I don't know if you've ever lived in that world before, but I mean seven days of getting hammered. Party, gluttonous, just crazy, seven days of that. And it was at the end of the seven days that this man who could call, the, he had enough power to say to the governors of India and Ethiopia, come to my city, come here, so that you could see how powerful I am. And he had that much power. Imagine how angry he was when he couldn't get his queen to come next door. Because Vashti is saying, look, I've no way, I'm not, you know, whatever she had experienced in this job, if you will, was bad enough that she was saying, no, not one more day of this. I'd rather die than that. And death was exactly where, what was about to happen to her. Because her unkind boss, if you will, her unpredictable boss Actually, it says in chapter one, he's looking, he's saying he gets his lawyers together. So now he's got, you know, imagine the scene, this glorious palace. He's called for his queen to come into parade in much the same way, you know, like a, a swimsuit model, just come walking down here and, let me, and she's mine, not because he likes her, but because he owns her. And she doesn't show up. And so he's, he's embarrassed, he's humiliated, he's afraid because he he's now looks like he is not as powerful as he was. So he consults with his lawyers and they tell him, you should issue a decree and you should banish her. That's what the law says. That's what the law is. But he's so unpredictable that he actually, history records in the Midrash and other commentaries that she wasn't just banished, that she was executed. Unpredictable. That is what starts chapter 2 and verse 1, is that now here's this guy, he's just executed his queen, He's hungover, and he's kind of in a bad mood. And it says in verse 1 that after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done 
and what had been decreed against her. And as he's remembering, you can imagine his other people, his lawyers and his eunuchs are like, oh God, you know, he's going to freak out. We got to figure something out. What if we, and so they float the idea, hey, let's go find you a new queen. We'll bring together all the beautiful women from all over. And you can pick your favorite one. And so that's what is happening. And that's where chapter two is unfolding is Esther who it was beautiful and probably that was always a benefit to her is now all of a sudden about to be a liability for her. And it says in chapter five that there was a Jew, I mean chapter five, chapter two, verse five, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. And it says in verse six that he was carried away from Jerusalem. The captives carried away with Jequina, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had carried away. For those of you that might be new to the scriptures, this was a period in time where Israel, imagine someone coming into your house in Thompson Station or Spring Hill and you have to leave. They take your stuff, they take your house and they haul you off captive down to Alabama. Not even the nice part, like not the ocean, like they just out deep Alabama. Like they've carried you away from there. And that's what had happened to Mordecai 30 years before this. And he'd been bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. And this young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Her Jewish name was Hadassah, but her uh, Persian name was Esther. She didn't use Hadassah in the day-to-day because it would cost her something to be a Jew. And so this was her new, ge- her new identity, her new location. And it says that in verse 9-8, when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when uh, many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in the custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put into the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women, in verse 9. And the young woman pleased him, and she won his favor. And he quickly provided her with the cosmetics and her portion of food, with seven chosen among uh, the women from the king's palace. This is going from bad to worse for her. Hundreds of women, and now she manages to make it into the top seven. If this were like the bachelorette, like she's on the air now, like she's made it on, on the show. And when it came time, verse 15, for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. And now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And it says in verse 17 that the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he uh, set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. She won and lost at the same time. I was chewing on this this week because if you think you have, like you're trapped in your job, if you think you're, you're in a dead-end job, you wouldn't be alone, by the way. 50% of Americans, by Harvard University research, 50% of Americans hate their job. And if you include the other 17% on top of that that are just unfulfilled in their work, it gets closer to 70% of people that feel trapped, that feel like they can't get out, that they're ne- this is a, I'm not getting anywhere. There's this ceiling that I've hit. This is a dead-end gig for me. You're not alone because 70% of Americans in one form or another are resonating with you. But Esther was in the dead end of all dead end jobs. She had an unpredictable boss. He was unfair and he was unkind. 
And there was only one way out of this job, and that was in a coffin. It was a dead-end job. She didn't choose it. It chose her. She didn't volunteer. She was taken. And all the perks in the world, all the cosmetics, all the stuff, didn't make up for the fact she was basically an indentured servant. Which, by the way, the research shows in America that companies that are spending tremendous amounts of money on uh, perks, like if you, Silicon Valley, you've, you've maybe seen on the news, it's, it's kind of a joke how awesome some of these places are. Free laundry, foosball, amazing stuff, pool, whatever. But the research is showing that that doesn't actually make the job a good job. It all comes down to the fulfillment. Do I feel a purpose in what I'm doing? And is my boss a jerk? And those are basically the two factors that drive people towards hating their jobs. I had a job like that. Uh, I've had a few jobs like that, actually. Uh, by the way, this is not one of them. I, I feel like I've won some kind of like cosmic lottery. I love what I do. But that wasn't true when I was a kid, when I was 19 and 20 years old. I'd spent a lot of time in my early teens shoveling horse poop and all that stuff. But by the time I was 19, I was a waiter at a restaurant in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, and I mean the kind of waiter with khaki pants, bow tie, green apron, name tag. It was called the Harvest Buffet Restaurant. Even the name, right? It feels like that's not a good job. The problem with this job was I actually made really good money at it. It was a buffet restaurant. I had like 25 tables in my section. If you could just flip each table every hour and you get two bucks per table. I mean, I was bankrolling at 19 years old. Unfortunately, Dave Ramsey had not come around yet, so I spent all that. Cash was not my friend. But I thought, I'm never going to get out of this job. I even tried to work at other restaurants as a waiter, and I'd get over there and all the work you had to put up with, and I didn't make that much money at some of these nicer places, and I, all roads kept taking me back to the Harvest Buffet restaurant, which parenthetically is where I met my wife, uh, so that worked out for me. I, you know, I guess it worked out for you, but for, it worked out. But by the time like 94 rolled around, I mean, I have, I've shared it here on a Sunday before, but I, my entire idea for life was I was just hoping something neat was going to happen. Like I didn't really have a plan. That was kind of it. And now I'm getting married, which was neat. Don't get me wrong. That was super neat. But I'm going to be this. This will be me for the rest of my life. And there was no you know, harm, no foul in that. Like I mean, there's a lot of amazing people that work in that industry now. It's a great Opportunity, And if you're there right now, it's a great opportunity where you encounter people, especially if you're a waiter or a waitress or I guess what do we call them now, servers, gender neutral. Um, you, you get a chance to pray for some folks sometimes, to love on some folks. So there's opportunities there. But I, I sat there, uh, it was 94, we're getting ready to get married, and I had uh, I'd found my path out of this dead-end job. And the way that we uh, commemorated that was, uh, you were there, right? When we, we stood around on the back patio of someplace, I don't even remember where it was, but I remember was we took the khaki pants, placed them in the middle on the ground, and I lit them on fire. <laughs> Lord has never spoken to me ever from a burning bush, but that day he was speaking from a pair of burning dockers. Uh, and as it turned out, the grease had gotten so ingrained into the fibers of the, I don't know how the science works of this, but had so ingrained into the pants that they were burning, but they were not consumed for a while. <laughs> it took a while for them to actually be consumed. It was like the fire was like floating on top of the pants. And 
but that was, for me, like, oh, man, I'm finally out of this dead-end job, you know, that there was another way. And, I, and, I, and I've had jobs since then that have felt that way. You probably, if, again, if, if statistics are true, you're probably in one right now. And if you're not, I want to give you another warning. If you're in a job that's an awesome job and you love it, be careful because it can become an idol. The job itself. So on either side of this is an opportunity for growth, okay? None of us are getting out of this one alive in this sermon. We're all going to get God to uh, talk to us honestly today. I was thinking about that in terms of what Esther was experiencing because she's in a job that she's trapped. She can't get out. Her boss is unkind. Her boss is unfair and unpredictable, and, and yet God used her anyway. And he used her, worked through her, even in that circumstance. Because whatever talents and skills you have, Esther's skill was she was beautiful. She, was, she, couldn't, she didn't choose that. It's just that's what, the way she was born. And, and she worked hard at it. <laughs> if you look at the treatments and stuff that she had to go through, this wasn't like she just put some proactive on. I mean, she had to, like, weeks in the oil and, the, you know, the, the, the essential stuff. I mean, she was working at her job. There was a lot of work that was involved in what she was doing. But her skills and her talents were not hers, they were God's. And when I remember that what he has gifted me to do, my talents and my skills, if I can remember that they're not mine, that they're his, that he has given them to me to steward on behalf of him, then my workplace is no longer just a place that I swing a hammer or write checks. My workplace is a place where I'm preaching a sermon. Here's what I mean. If your work is a mission field, and I believe it is. If your work is a mission field, your job performance is your sermon. The way that you do your job is the way that you communicate who God is. And we get to do that as moms. This whole idea of stay-at-home mom is such a joke. I mean, when my wife wasn't working, she never stayed at home. There was stuff to do, places to go. But in that, we have this opportunity, whether it's a mom, whether it's in your workplace, to tell the story of who Jesus is, who God is, and how good of a job we do with our, with our work. I thought about Paul because if you remember, it was Acts chapter 18 when Paul had just left Athens. And Paul had preached a sermon that is studied to this day. Seminaries study this. It was like probably the best sermon of his life. He compared the unknown gods. He made it culturally relevant, yada, yada, yada. Nobody got saved. No churches were formed. He probably was headed to Corinth with his tail between his legs, feeling like a failure. And not just feeling like a failure because the sermon didn't work. And I I mean, that's conjecture. I don't know how he felt. I'm just telling you, that's how I'd feel. I'd feel like a big tool. So he heads to Corinth, and it says that after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth in verse 1 of chapter 18, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. They had fled persecution, and they found their way here. And it says that Paul, verse 3, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Paul, it's been, you know, we know that over and over again. It's been probably preached into the ground that Paul worked and his job was a tent maker. But it's not lost on me that Paul wasn't a tent maker originally. Paul was a Pharisee that was celebrated in his culture. 
powerful man, prosperous, feared, revered. If I'm Paul, again, I don't know what Paul was thinking. I just know what I'd be thinking. That is not exactly moving forward in your career. That's moving backwards in your career. But here's what I believe. I believe that Paul might have moved backwards in his career, but he's moving forward in the kingdom. And here's why I believe that, because he encounters Aquila and Priscilla. They're tent makers, and on his job, he is now not only working with them, it actually says he moved in with them. He's living with them in this small little house. And it had to have been small because it's recorded that the church that met in Corinth met next door at Titus's house, not at Aquila and Priscilla's house. But in that 18 months, as they're working and they're making tents, Paul is preaching, he's investing, he's discipling. I mean, if you're going to have an employee like Paul, not a bad way to start. And Paul's backwards move in the kingdom of man was a forward move in the kingdom of God because it was Aquila and Priscilla that would go with him. In 18 months, he's in Corinth. In 18 months later, he's now going to head to Ephesus. And guess who goes with him? Aquila and Priscilla. And their job must have been doing pretty good because now it's recorded the church in Ephesus didn't meet next door to Aquila and Priscilla, but it actually met in their house. So they're doing better at their job. They're getting a little bigger house. They're using their job for the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of man. Their story is one that I hope can be our story, and that is that we can build credibility, we can build contact, we can build impact in our world, in our job, in the mission field of our career. And I'll say it again, that if your mission field is the career, your sermon is your performance. It's incredibly important that we as believers tell a really good story about who God is in our work. And I want to go back to Esther chapter 2 because I think that Esther teaches us that an occupational hazard could actually be occupational hope. That Esther herself shows us that your career, whether you chose it or not, whether you want to be there or not, that your career can be used by our Father to do great things in this world. And in your career, it requires you to have skills and talents just like Esther. The better we get at those, the, the more we hone our skills. I mean, Jace, when you're, you know, you're climbing around trees, like I, I, that terrifies me. But you're good at what you do. And it tells a story to the people who your customers when you're on time, when you're dependable, when you are trustworthy, when you're adaptable. When, and I see all that in what, Esther, what happened in Esther's life. I see that as her skills were being honed, that Esther, number one, was teachable. In chapter two, what does it say? That when she went into the king, that she was told by Haggai, hey, just bring this, this, and this. And she didn't bring anything more or anything less. She did exactly as she was taught to do. She was teachable. When she was in the, uh, in the court of the king, she was teachable. She only did what Mordecai taught her to do. And in our lives, and I, I don't care how old or how young you are, being teachable is one of the traits in the kingdom of God that I think is, is really an unappreciated asset in our culture. Not just being teachable, but being adaptable, changeable. 
See, I have a problem with me, and that's that I love to learn. Like, I'll ask you all kinds of questions, and I'll be completely fascinated by it, and then I'll keep doing it exactly the same way that I was doing it. So I might be teachable, but I ain't changeable. A friend of mine taught me this equation, and maybe it'll be helpful for you. But he said, you know, grade yourself on a a scale of 100%. 100% meaning you're ace on the test. 100% how teachable and how changeable are you? And his equation is this. Take yourself, if I lose you, you can wave your hand and I'll come right back. But just take your scale of 1 to 10, how teachable are you? How willing are you to listen to somebody who wants to teach you how to do your job better? How teachable are you? to learn that, oh, you know what, I could do this and this would be a lot better. I mean, Jace, I'm assuming there was a point when you're swinging around trees in Nebraska and somebody said, hey, if you did it this way, it'd be a lot better. And you have to decide whether you want to learn from that or not. Are you going to do it your own way? So how teachable am I, scale of 1 to 10? And then how changeable am I, scale of 1 to 10? And if you don't know, if you're married, ask your spouse. They'll let you know. Because I would say for me, like, teachable... I'm probably a good eight because I love to learn. I love to ask questions and learn. But when it comes to changeability, that's a little bit lower. Shannon's already left, but she would be out of her seat going, glory. (laughs) But let's say I give myself a six on the changeability and an eight on the teachability. Multiply those two. What is that? 48. I got a lot of work to do on a 100% scale of teachability and changeability. Just a little exercise maybe for your drive home today. How teachable, how changeable are you? The Bible tells us in 1 Peter 5 that you who are younger, chapter 5, verse 5 of 1 Peter, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves of all you with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Being teachable, being willing to learn is so important. Proverbs 13, 18, poverty and disgrace come to him who ignores instruction. But whoever heeds reproof is honored. Esther was teachable. She was willing to learn. She was willing to maybe do something differently because it was the right way to do it, not because the way she wanted to do it. I want to be more teachable. I want to be more uh, changeable because I believe that it tells the story of our father. She wasn't just teachable. She was also dependable. When the murder plot was unfolding there in chapter 2, verse 22, Esther was dependable. She could be counted on. When Mordecai needed her, she was dependable. Esther said, I'm going to do this, and you know what she did? She did it. She was dependable. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 2 says that of stewards, it's required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. I think that no greater story can be told of our Father than when we say we're going to do something, that we do it. There's no greater story of dependability of our own Father that as a believer, as a follower in Christ, that we can tell that when I say I'm going to be someplace, that I'm there, that I'm there not where I said to be, just that, but when I said I was going to be, that there is a dependability that we can be that tells a story of our Father in, in our workplaces. That is an amazing story. I think through like what that might look like in all of our daily lives. And if you're in a company where there's lots of people, let it be known of you that you're the dependable one. Let it be known of you that you're the one that can be counted on. 
What a great story of the gospel. What a great sermon that we preach when we are where we say we're going to be, when we do what we say we're going to do, how we say we're going to do it. She wasn't just dependable. She wasn't just, she was available. And that one, you ever been in a room where someone's saying, hey, who, who, you know, you're looking for somebody to volunteer and I don't know about you, but sometimes in those, I'm like, okay, don't, don't get anything. I contact, don't, I don't want to be the one. I go, what if it's the other way around with us as believers, as followers of Jesus, that we're the ones that are volunteering because we're the ones that are available to serve, not just in the church. And by the way, I want to say that in our church family, most says this all the time in staff meetings, it's not like we have a shortage of people volunteering. We have probably one of the highest availability rates of any church. I don't know what the stats are, but you guys are great. You're available to serve in your church. That tells me that you're probably being super available in your jobs. But that is a story that we can tell when it says here in verse chapter 3 of verse 17 of Colossians that whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That when we are available, what does uh, 2 Timothy 4.2 tell us? To be ready in season and out of season. In other words, hey, just be ready, whether you knew it was coming or not. Just be ready. Be available. Be like Esther, because it allows us to tell a story of who Jesus is I know I'm saying these things, and some of you are probably thinking, like, maybe I would have been thinking at certain points in my life, yeah, that, Darren, that, that's great, but you don't know my boss. You don't know how awful it is where I work. You don't know what he's like, what she's like. And it's true, I don't, because I don't go to work with you every day. But I know that in the middle of a job, a situation, a company where your work isn't appreciated, where you are being, you basically feel like, man, I am just a slave here, that you are not alone. Because in that, if you read in the book of Philemon in the New Testament, Paul is writing a letter. And he's writing a letter on behalf of Onesimus. Does anybody know who Onesimus is? Have you heard that name before? Onesimus found himself in prison with Paul not a bad place to go to jail, handcuffed to Paul. Onesimus was a bond servant, and his owner, his master, was a guy named Philemon. And what did Paul do in that little short little letter? We call it a book. It's basically one chapter, just a few verses. His letter to Philemon was saying, hey, look, Onesimus, I know he's stolen from you. I know he wasn't a good bond servant of you, but he's coming back. And I would ask that if he owes you anything, I'll take care of it. I'll pay for it all. Which, parenthetically, is an amazing and a beautiful story to this day of the gospel of what Jesus has done in our lives. But Onesimus was headed back to town, heading back to Philemon. And he was heading back to his town called Colossae which Paul would then write a letter to the people at the church of Colossians. And if you have your Bible, maybe you'd want to turn there. I'm going to read to you from the Message Bible because this is what Paul would write to both Philemon and Onesimus, the servant and the boss. And he's writing this to the servant, to the guy who probably thinks this is not fair, it's not right, I can't, I'm trapped in this job. And he says to him from the Message Bible, Bible, verse 22, servants, 
Do what you're told by your earthly masters. And don't just do the minimum that will get you by. Do your best. Work from the heart for your real master, for God, confident that you'll get paid in full when you come into your inheritance, speaking of eternity. And he goes on to say, keep in mind always that the ultimate master you're serving is Christ. The sullen servant who does shoddy work will be held responsible. Listen to this. Being a follower of Jesus doesn't cover up for bad work. When we follow Jesus, it's easy to be a good employee for a good boss. What requires the Holy Spirit in our life is when we are working for somebody who's not fair, who's not kind, and who's not predictable, that we have a chance to tell a story of a dependable God, of a trustworthy God. We, have, we get to tell a story with our lives. You see, it's only a dead-end job if death is the end. But it's not. If you get stuck in your life digging coal mines in England for the rest of your life, it's not the end because death is not the end. In those moments when you've done something that you felt was thankless, that wasn't appreciated, that felt like that, I just didn't, you know who noticed and you know who did notice and who is going to reward you is our Heavenly Father. Because in, in an essence, you're kind of taking one for the team. I don't know of a better phrase than that. Taking one for the team and being an example of Jesus to these employers or to your company and telling a story of who Jesus is. Your talents and your skills are a highway on which the gospel can travel. And maybe you feel like you've gone, I talked to a man in the first service who feels like he's gone backwards in his career. He'd managed a giant uh, corporation and hundreds of millions of dollars, and now he's in this whole other situation. He feels like he's been pulled backwards into his career. And I get that, because in 1997, I, was, uh, I thought I was all that in, a, in, in everything else, because I had signed a couple of young bands that had done uh, really well. And I'm 26 at this point, and I am, you know, I'm it. I'm, a, I'm prideful and cocky and arrogant until I realized I was the farm team. They went to another agency, to the big guys in town. And I'm standing there going, I got a new baby? I thought we were friends. <laughs> so I had to start a company, and I signed some young acts, and I'm booking bands on the phone. And, and if you've been an entrepreneur, or if you're the spouse of an entrepreneur, I should say this, God has a very special place in heaven for you. Because I'm a young entrepreneur, and you know how this goes. You are the last person to get paid, and sometimes you don't get paid. Payday is called get to payday, and I'm starting this young company, and I'm struggling. And as it turns out, Maddie, my oldest daughter, who's 19 now, she would have been like one, and she actually wanted to eat like every day, sometimes more than once. And so we had to feed her. And, and so I needed to get another job to supplement my income. I needed to get a job to keep us alive. <laughs> and I found it with a pair of khaki pants, a green apron, and a black bow tie, asking if you'd like a refill. And I remember the feeling of failure, of I'm never going to get out of here. 
I'm, I'm right back where I started. And I wish, you know how it is, I'm 45 now, so I know a whole lot that I didn't know then. All I knew then is it was unfair and unkind and unpredictable. What I didn't know was that God had a plan and he was putting stuff in motion. And listen to me, I want you to hear this very clearly. A prison and an incubator have the exact same characteristics. But the purpose is way different. An incubator traps you in and it's hot and it's uncomfortable. But the purpose isn't to imprison you, but to grow you. The prison is just to hold you. And so don't confuse a prison with an incubator. And you can pound on the walls of the incubator all day long and you can sweat and gripe and moan. But eventually, what I learned was that humility and humiliation share the same root word. And then those moments of the humiliation, for me, what God was really doing was not mean. It was really kind. He was humbling me. And there was a path that I was on that started in that restaurant, Harvest Buffet in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that actually led back to where we are today. And I can look in hindsight, and if you had an hour, I could show it. I could map it out. And I could show you, like, oh, he, had, he knew exactly what he was doing. There was a reason I brought the apron out of retirement. And I can't say what that path is for you. I don't know. I can only say that it's faith that you need to look at it, your situation and right now and say, okay, he's got this under control. I'm going to put the apron on one more time. I'm going to put the bow tie on one more time. I'm going to swing the hammer a little while longer. I'm going to add those numbers a little while longer. Knowing that even if, listen, even if on this side of heaven it feels that you never got out, all I know is that our heavenly Father sees what's being done in secret and he will reward in public and he will. There will be a moment in heaven where you'll look back and go, wow, that, wasn't, that was amazing. You are a good, good Father. And it is our distinct pleasure, our honor, our privilege, that whatever job we find ourselves in, to take a play out of Esther's book and to be dependable, to be where we say we're going to be, when we say we're going to be there, how we say, to do what we say we're going to do, being dependable, let our yes be yes, our no be no. It's our privilege to be teachable, to be changeable. In our job, to not walk in as the know-it-all, but to listen and to understand. And it is a great honor and privilege to keep your yes on the table, not just for Morocco, but for your job, to be available, not just in your church, but in your day-to-day -day life and activity, to be available for those around you. I want more than anything for us as believers to be able to tell a great story of who Jesus is in our day-to-day -day lives, in our jobs, in our careers. Your career is your mission. Your performance is your sermon. It's as simple as that. You can accomplish more in your day-to-day -day job by being who God is being that to your fellow workers, to your subordinates, to your bosses, to your customers. You can be more than I can do in 52 sermons in a year because you are telling a story with your life. 
And I look in this room and I know that I'm surrounded by people that are telling a great love story of who Jesus is in their work. And I could start naming names, but then I'm, we'll be here all day. But I, I just, I know it. I know you guys and I know how you're, I know how you are here. And so it tells me that you're there doing the same thing. Would you stand with me? It's my hope that we don't spend the rest of our lives working for the weekend. <laughs> we're working for times and we're working for eternity. It's been said that you can be so earthly minded that you're no earthly good or heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. I'm telling you, if you're not heavenly minded, you're not going to be any earthly good. This only makes sense in the light of eternity. And that faith that is required isn't just the faith that he's going to save you. Absolutely, he has saved you. He loves you. He's a good father. But the faith that even in your job, even in the minutia, that he is God and he is sovereign and he is moving and he is putting pieces in place. And so that if you don't understand it now, it's the faith required that he's actually going to take care of you. I hope this makes sense. I challenge all of us this week to go and tell a really good sermon to our coworkers and to our employees, to the moms in the carpool line, to the moms. That, you know, I mean, I, there's so much going on in this church right now. Go tell a really good God story in the community with your life this week. Let's pray. Father, oh boy, you're so good and we're so thankful. I know that in this room probably that if statistics are right that there's probably more than one and maybe more than half of this room that's in a job or a career or a life that we feel trapped in. It's not something that you are unfamiliar with as you yourself were trapped. You were pinned to a cross as a sacrifice for us. And today, Lord, I hope that somehow in our hearts that your spirit will come alive and that even if we're trapped, we can feel that as an opportunity for the gospel to invade our work. Lord, I ask for you to show us where we could be more teachable and adapting, where we could be more dependable, more available, that you just work inside of us to help us to tell a really good story this week of who you are. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.